0: Russian troops have been on the doorstep of eastern Ukraine for months. And now they're in the country. On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin recognized two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine — Donetsk and Luhansk — as independent entities. He also ordered Russian troops to enter those areas.
1: I consider it necessary to recognize the independence of the sovereignty of the Donetsk and Luhansk republics. Russia has taken this decision in the support of friendship and assistance for these republics. Those who are holding back, we are trying to stop military action as soon as possible and stop the bloodshed.
0: In response, sanctions are on the way or have already been imposed from the US, the EU and the UK. And Germany has canceled a long-planned gas pipeline. Now there's just one question. Will it lead to a full-scale invasion? For most of the buildup over the last month, Ukrainians' view has remained pretty steadfast. Many never thought a full-scale invasion was coming.
2: The overwhelming majority
0: of people here believe or at least hope that President Putin's aim is to launch a limited invasion to the east where Ukrainian forces have been battling Russian separatists for years. But events are moving fast now. So today, we're looking at how prepared Ukrainians are or aren't for war. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We brought this episode to air as events were changing rapidly in Ukraine. And to get across everything that's happening, we're talking to Liz Cookman, who's there. I'm a freelance journalist currently covering the Ukraine crisis for Al Jazeera. Liz has been reporting from the Ukrainian city of Mariupol.
1: Which is the closest major city to the front line.
0: How long have you been there? Two weeks. I first spoke to Liz last week, when an invasion did not seem imminent. But as the news came in, she sent us voice notes with updates. So it's Tuesday afternoon, and last night the news came in that
1: Russia had recognized the two separatist territories and also had moved its troops into those territories, which is essentially an invasion, but they claim that those troops are there in a peacekeeping capacity. It's a little bit too early to tell fully what the reaction has been. People, I think, are still taking it in. On Monday night, everybody was glued to their phones, glued to the news. The streets were quite quiet and actually a little bit tense. But on Tuesday, things seem to be back to normal. People are out and about again. I think it's still very unclear what this means and whether this is the end of it, whether Putin has made his move and he's going to be happy with that
0: or whether he's going to push for more. Before Putin's announcement, there had already been a dramatic increase in shelling. On Saturday, Liz went to a city called Marenka, which is very close to the front line. You can actually see the
1: separatist territory, and it's essentially a suburb of Donetsk, the self-proclaimed capital of one of the separatist territories. People there have been coming under heavy shelling, and we spoke to a woman who was injured and a few people whose houses have been hit. and. The mood there was pretty tense, although they've had eight years of it. So
0: from my understanding, they are used to living in this kind of tense environment. And she said it's often the proximity to that tense environment that determines people's reactions now. What people
1: often say in Mariupol is that everybody in Kiev is panicking, but you won't see any panic here. And a lot of people think that the further away from the front line
0: you get, the more people actually feel panicked by the situation. As we mentioned, Mariupol is where Liz has been based. It's close to the front line in the east. To the southwest is the Sea of Azov and the peninsula of Crimea, now annexed by Russia. And about a week ago, when reporting on local preparations, Liz went to a self-defense training for Mariupol's residents. They were learning some pretty useful skills. How to give first response medical care, how to pack a bag
1: in case they need to escape, how to evacuate, how to handle weapons, how to pick up a grenade, all of these things. A lot of people went along because the government has done absolutely no training for civilians to kind of give them any information about what they should do to keep themselves safe.
0: Back then, Liz said, the training was in some ways a bit of a day out for the people who came. And there was a wide variety of attendees. She was struck by several older women, babushkas or grandmothers
1: It was quite a you know it's winter here, it's very, very cold. We're on the front lines of a war, and everyone was dressed in very kind of gray clothes, and there was these four babushkas dressed in like like a girl band, one dressed in all yellow, one dressed in all pink, one dressed in blue, one dressed in all black, all stood there. They were very visually striking, but also they were super interesting because. Most of the people at the event were much younger, but they were really engaging with the training. And it's quite unusual to see women in their 70s, in their 60s, in their 80s, lying on the floor, holding a gun, learning how to hold it and shoot.
0: One of the women was named Valentina. She's a volunteer who helps the Ukrainian forces fighting pro-Russian separatists. You can hear the training in the background. I came here to learn to do things that I haven't been able to do before. Putin has made me do this. And I think if he really attacks, I can't sit home and do nothing. Everything can happen. If someone is injured, I must know how to provide first aid. In case I need to defend my country, I must learn how to do it. Despite my age, I have been dreaming to shoot a machine gun since 2014, but they told me I was too old and could be killed.
1: Valentina was a super sprightly 79 year old with sparkling eyes and she looked absolutely amazing and the media absolutely loved her. I think she ended up on the front page of the Times in the UK and the Telegraph and she was on NBC and she's also been volunteering since 2014 and that's everything from the um, take them supplies. They've dug trenches, they've built lookout towers, they've done absolutely everything to help these guys. She expressed extreme love for her city an intense belief that it was her duty to do what she could to help the war effort to protect people from Russian invasion.
0: So the purpose of this training, as you've said, is because people feel that the Ukrainian government hasn't made preparations for civilians. Can you tell me more about that? How prepared do people feel for a possible invasion?
1: So despite the fact that this conflict with the Russian-backed separatists in the East was very heavy in 2014-2015, since then it's been simmering in the background, despite eight years of that, the average civilian has very little awareness of even where their nearest bomb shelter is, what they're supposed to do to keep themselves safe. And the Ukrainian government has done very little to prepare people. I mean, if you compare it to, say, even in the UK, when there was the Cold War and there was a threat that there could be a nuclear bomb at any moment, people had, like, flyers put through their door. The government had TV ad campaigns. There was a big push to try and make sure that people knew how they were supposed to react and what they were supposed to do to protect themselves if something happened. Whereas here, it, it seems that you would expect that to be a part of everyday life, but they they just don't do it. It's quite astounding that people don't even know where their local bomb shelter is. In fact, I spoke to the head of a bomb shelter in Mariupol who said they've done absolutely nothing to prepare it. There's no water supply, there's no reserve food, there's no supplies basically because they're not expecting anything to happen. I don't think it comes from a place of a lack of care. Ukraine is quite a poor country. A lot of its resources have gone into the war. But also, among civilians themselves, there is a kind of stoic calm where people refuse to be kind of scared or refuse to have their lives overshadowed by this conflict.
0: When I asked Liz last week where she'd go if she heard an air raid siren, or if she'd made her own preparations, she wasn't sure yet. But by Tuesday, she said some plans were starting to form. If the air raid sirens sound, then we have to evacuate and find the nearest
1: bomb shelter that are around 905 around the city. But they're all in various levels of disrepair. I think some have been kind of um, spruced up recently and made sure that they're clean and put some supplies into But a lot of them are... Some have even been turned into restaurants and spas because people assess the threat level as being so low. Our local one is kind of in between. It exists, you can go into it, but it's not got water
0: and it's not in particularly good shape. — Planning further than that is tricky because it's still so unclear what's going to happen. — We have a number of plans. One is to go to the local mosque. We're in touch with the imam there. It's a
1: community center, so there's likely to be other people around. So that's one scenario. We also have spoken to a driver that we've kind of got a deal with that he'll get us over the Dnipro River, which is the border of kind of eastern Ukraine and into central Ukraine. And then in terms of if, the flights stop out of Ukraine, there's always the land border into Poland. So there's a number of different scenarios. But, I mean, it's very hard for people to plan for those kind of scenarios at the moment because there's so many of them and it's so hard to know which one is going to be the one to happen.
0: And last week, Liz said the same was true of most Ukrainians. They had not really prepared. It's such a weird um, paradox because... From outside
1: of the country, it just looks so scary. It looks so intense. People themselves just say, like, we've lived like this for eight years. They believe that they have lived for a long time with the threat of an
0: attack from Russians. That rings especially true in Mariupol. In the spring of 2014, a small group of pro-Russian fighters occupied strategic locations in the city. And since then, there's been threat after threat coming from the east, as troops mass on the border and then stand down. Back in 2014, it was a local volunteer militia called Azov that drove out the pro-Russian fighters. They're also the ones who organized this civilian training. But since they formed, Azov has been dogged by controversy.
1: There's the Azov Regiment, which is based out of Mariupol. Their, Their military base is 40 kilometers from the city along the sea but they're part of a wider group called Azov, which has a political wing based out of Kiev, which is incredibly controversial for its recruitment of far-right supremacists, neo-Nazis, ultra-nationalists.
2: The Azov badge resembles the Angle, which was worn by Nazi infantry divisions in World War II. There's been pressure in the US Congress to declare Azov a terrorist organization, but the regiment's leader says it has distanced itself from politics and serves the Ukrainian government and people.
0: And possibly as a result, the training in Mariupol was not an Azov-branded event.
1: It was advertised with an unbranded, sponsored post on Instagram. A lot of people didn't really know what the event was going to entail or who was running it. People thought it was going to be a mix of the military, the territorial defence and Azov. People didn't know that it was going to be just fully Azov. And a lot of people said that they didn't, Yeah, they had no idea until they
0: arrived. And not all of the journalists there focused on this far-right aspect of the story. One of the people watching the coverage was Michael Colburn.
2: My name is Michael Colburn. I'm a journalist and researcher originally from Canada and currently based in the Netherlands. I work for the investigative journalism website Bellingcats, where I focus on the far-right.
0: Michael wrote a book on Azov, and he says there was a lot of context missing.
2: Azov should have enough name recognition for any journalist going to Ukraine to know that, you know, maybe you should be asking a few questions. And that's why when you see them offering these sorts of civil defense training, it's on its face, it's hard to object to it. I keep seeing headline after headline come through hour after hour these days. It really does seem more and more like some sort of absolute worst case situation is going to happen and maybe there will be some sort of full-scale invasion or intervention in Ukraine. So it's very hard for a lot of Ukrainians to look at what the Azov regiment does with with these trainings and, and condemn them for it.
0: The media coverage of these trainings touches on another aspect of the conflict that Michael's well versed in, the media war. The disinformation, the competing narratives, and the spectators to it all. Us, the audience.
2: What I'd stress to to anybody who sees a tweet or a headline come through about Ukraine is, for one, to consider the source, where it's coming from. And while this is, of course, mostly targeted at, at the Russian side, and rightfully so, It extends to every other actor in this as well, not necessarily because they're spreading disinformation or something, but just to understand that there is likely a much broader context to what's being said than just the eye-catching headline or the eye-catching revelation of whatever latest intelligence assessment has come out in terms of what's going on on the so-called separatist side, for example. It's very hard to verify information coming from there, so it's best to take any claim that comes from there with a grain of salt, but when it comes to the other side, I would personally argue that some of the revelations that have been made coming out of apparent U.S. intelligence sources are... I'm skeptical of them over these past few weeks. It seemed... That there's a divide between this incredibly dire U.S. intelligence assessment versus the assessment coming from a lot of people in Ukraine, including its leadership, who have been downplaying the threat of some sort of full-scale invasion, basically downplaying that intelligence.
0: That was all before Putin recognized the two breakaway regions as independent. But on Monday... Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was still defiant.
1: We are on our own land. We are not afraid of anything or anyone. We owe nothing to anyone. And we will not give anything to anyone. We are sure of that. Because today is not February 2014, but February 2022. Another country, another army, one goal.
2: Peace, peace in Ukraine.
0: And now inside Ukraine, Michael does think that civilians might start preparing too.
2: I think a few weeks ago, maybe the civil defense training was maybe for some of them seen as a novelty. Probably not a ton of people attending them all. I would bet over the last few days and in, in the last week, with the increasingly dire predictions and warnings that coming out whether they hold true or not I think it'll motivate some to make plans to evacuate and leave as anyone should but for others they are probably thinking much more seriously right now about okay if you know if this absolute worst case full-scale invasion happens, I probably will need to have a gun in my hand. what do I do I have no idea how to do that oh I'm going to go to this kind of training and at least, get the basic skills of how to comport oneself in this absolute nightmare sort of partisan fighting in the street situation.
0: Back in Mariupol, I asked Liz how people there are feeling. In Mariupol, which is vulnerable from three sides, with the Azov
1: Sea to the east, Russia to the north, and Separatist territory to the west, People are incredibly calm compared to how you might expect them to react. I think because it's still so unclear if this is going to escalate even further and if there is an invasion, what kind of form that will take, whether it will involve aerial bombardments, whether it will come from the sea, whether there will be a physical troop invasion, or whether perhaps troops will come in from the north and actually take Kiev and, and avoid
0: eastern Ukraine altogether. Liz said it's the external reactions now that everyone in Ukraine is watching.
1: What a lot of civilians have told me is that having the support of the West, of the UK, Canada, the US, Germany to some extent, France to some extent, has really made them feel a lot better and they feel that there is strength in numbers and they feel that there is no need for them to panic when they feel that the whole world is behind them although there's a lot of pro-Ukrainian and nationalistic sentiment among some of the population, there is definitely a certain proportion of the population who have said they want peace. If Russia wants to come, let them come. They won't fight. Just leave them alone and let them get on with their life. After eight years of war, they're weary. They just want a better life. And they're kind of resigned to the idea that If an occupying force comes, that's okay. They just want it to pass as easily as possible. There's still an expectation that this is just the first step and a lot worse could be coming. So I think people are reserving any kind of panic or major reaction until they really fully have a better picture of what's likely to happen.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Ruby Zeman, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back on Friday.